This is Jennifer Gonzalez welcoming you to episode 27 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast. In this episode, part two of a two-part episode, I interview an instructional coach to learn how he helps teachers get better at teaching. So in part one of this two-parter, I interviewed Gretchen Schultek-Bridgers. She is an instructional coach in North Carolina, and we talked a lot about the work she does and how she does it and how she got to be doing it in the first place. And I thought it would be a good idea to get a broader perspective on instructional coaching if I interviewed another person too. And so I also interviewed Eric Sandberg, who is an instructional coach in Pennsylvania. And so this is part two. Uh, If you want to hear the other part, it's episode 26. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I'm learning from listening to both of them is that you don't necessarily have to have an interest in instructional coaching to get something from this episode because it's not just instructional coaches who are tasked with helping teachers improve their teaching. People who are administrators have to do this people who are mentor teachers. Every state has different kinds of of teacher mentoring programs. And then other times we have informal relationships with other teachers where maybe they're asking us for help or maybe we're seeing that they could use some help. And so I think listening to both Gretchen and Eric, it's really helpful to hear how they approach the work and how much they value relationships and how carefully they approach situations where a teacher might be feeling a little bit defensive or anxious about having somebody there to point out things that they're doing wrong. So even if you're not interested in instructional coaching, but you're you're moving toward a position where you would be helping other teachers improve their work, you're definitely going to get something out of listening to this. Before I play the interview, I just want to say thank you to those of you who have left a review on iTunes for the podcast. If you haven't yet, but you've been getting something out of it, I would absolutely be so grateful if you would go over and just leave a quick review. It really helps people find the podcast. iTunes puts shows that have high, uh, a higher amount of reviews out in front of people more. So I would love it if you would do that, and thank you if you already have. All right, let's get started with part two of our two-part interview with instructional coaches. We are talking to Eric Sandberg. He is an instructional coach, and he actually has a website called yourinstructionalcoach.com. Um, Eric has been an instructional coach in Pennsylvania for six years. And on his website, he actually shares a lot of really sort of useful um, tips for instructional coaches to sort of help them do their work better. So he seemed like a good person to talk to about this kind of work. So welcome, Eric. Hi, it's nice to be here. <laughs> so if you could start by just give me uh, an overview of, of the kind of work that you do as an instructional coach. Uh, I think probably the best way to describe my work is in two um, veins. One is more in the classroom things that I do. So I might uh, model for a teacher an instructional strategy or um, co-teach with the teacher um, or sometimes providing feedback as the teacher does the teaching. Um, And then a second sort of vein, if you will, of uh, roles that I have outside of the classroom uh, whether it be facilitating meetings or uh, PLCs, working with data, uh, and then participating in various 
teams uh, at my school, um, leadership teams, and various roles that support the school goals. Uh, those are probably the best ways to describe my work. So okay. when you said my school, are you assigned to just one school? I am currently um, assigned to one school. I have in the past been um, assigned in different in a slightly different role. I was in working in actually eight schools at once, if you will, but it really never, you could really never work in all eight at once. Right. But that was in a sort of a previous coaching role when I really was focused on um, elementary science instruction. So it was a little different focusing more specifically on one subject than what I do now, which is a little, a little broader and obviously a lot deeper when I'm working with one school. Okay. And, and how is it, how does it actually work? Do you, do you sort of get assigned to kind of work with everybody evenly or are you given specific teachers to, to coach, um, because there's been an identified need? Um, it's a little bit of everything. I'm in a, I'm in a unique situation, um, these past two years, last year and then this current year. I'm at a large, uh, K to eight school that is in sort of an improvement mode where a few years ago uh, they had one of the, the lowest or poorest um, results on the state tests. And so they were put into what we call in our state priority status. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, there was a lot of unique things that happened and a large amount of federal and state money came to this school. And one of the great things about that is that I'm actually a full-time coach there, and there are two other full-time coaches there as well. Wow. So, which we are probably one of the few <laughs> few and proud out there that have three. A lot of schools are, aren't even lucky enough to have one full-time coach, let alone more than one. Right. Uh, and a lot of schools obviously share. So we've been really lucky to have really a team of coaches and and also really lucky that two of our three administrators are former coaches as well, who I've, I've worked with in the past, both as administrators and coaches. So it's almost really like we have five <laughs> coaches, although yeah. two of them have a little more authority than, than, the, than the other three. So right. uh, in our case, we get to play off of our strengths. So one of our coaches has a lot of primary elementary experience. Mm -hmm. So she handles a lot of the littler, um, not the little teachers, but the little, <laughs> the teachers of, of primary grades, let's say. <laughs> um, and then the other two of us have more upper elementary and a little bit of middle school experience as well. So we handle a lot of the third and up or fourth and up grades and so a little bit of subject area kind of playing together there too. How how do you strategize then? If you're working on a team of people, I mean, do you sort of meet on a daily or weekly basis to decide where the needs are? Are there sort of long-term plans that everybody's working with? We definitely, we meet as a team with the administration weekly or roughly weekly because we actually work on a six-day rotation, but that's not really important for this conversation. <laughs> so uh, we do meet uh, weekly to discuss sort of what direction to go, um, particularly with our PLCs. We have content area PLCs. So mm -hmm. at least once during that rotation, I'll meet with, say, the sixth grade math team. And that conversation and sort of the focus of it has been planned out in our weekly meeting with the administration. Okay. 
So what I'm curious about, I guess, about your path to becoming a coach and maybe if your path doesn't really represent what's typical, you know, what, what paths do people actually take? How does somebody become an instructional coach? I think it very, very much varies by district and sometimes even by school. I originally became an instructional coach, like you said earlier, you know, six years or so ago through a grant um, that my district received. And you'll find, you know, as you talk to a lot of coaches, a lot of the time coaching positions are grant funded. And my current job is no different than than that, except in this case, it's it's a it's a grant from a Department of Education. A lot of times there are grants through nonprofits, um, whether it's the Foundation or the General Electric Foundation or what have you. Okay. And there's, in terms of uh, qualifications to become an instructional coach, there's not, are there master's programs or anything? Is it really just being an experienced teacher that qualifies you to become a coach? In in my experience, it's it's more the latter. It's, it's being an experienced teacher. Um, a lot of times you'll see a, a posting for an instructional coach will have you know, must have five years of experience or successful classroom experience. Many times you'll see the requirement of being involved in in the school district or in school roles outside of your own classroom. So committee work or curriculum work or uh, working on district assessments prior to being a coach, you know, is it may be a requirement or, or at least uh, a plus in the in the interview process. Okay. But, but you, but you mentioned, you know, it, a true certification in coaching. Mm-hmm. Not that I know of. I know there's some, some programs out there that are sort of starting out, but usually it's like you said, you're a quality classroom teacher and you're interested in this kind of work. Right. That's usually the, the, um, qualification. Okay. Seems like it wasn't too long ago when I started even hearing the term instructional coach. And I remember thinking, I don't even know if I've ever even heard of this before. So I'm wondering if it's kind of a recent position that's kind of been created in maybe the last 10 years or so, or if maybe it was just something I just, maybe it's just, I didn't hear of it. I, I would say that's probably pretty accurate. Um, not that I represent all, um, you know, public school districts, but in our district, I would say that's probably, probably pretty close as just about 10 years ago, our central administration started kind of tinkering with this idea of teachers coming out of the classroom to do, like I said, some of those roles of curriculum assessment, working with teachers on instruction and to, to varying degrees of success. I think sometimes those types of uh, initiatives weren't all that well thought out. And sometimes people that sometimes get, gives coaching a, a bad name in some districts because people see folks that were handpicked out of uh, central administration and sometimes not seen very positively, or you hear, you hear terrible things said like they're spies or they're here to get you or they're the curriculum police or things like that. So right. I think, uh, as instructional coaching has grown, awareness of the best that can come out of instructional coaching has grown as well. Great. Well, that's actually a good segue into my next question, which is about some of the challenges of working as an instructional coach. What would you say some of your biggest challenges are? I mentioned earlier that 
I'm in kind of a unique, a unique situation. And in, in my case right now, when the school was sort of, uh, revamped due to this priority status, the, um, old faculty was basically given the, the choice to leave. Um, and probably 90 something percent of them did. Wow. And the new administration coming in had a lot of leeway and freedom to basically interview and select the new staff or the new faculty. So about nine, last year was a, was really tricky because we had so many new teachers who need a lot of support uh, in a tough school that has a lot of issues and struggles. This year, a little bit more of a mixture of a lot of folks with us for a second year, a few that are new to our district, but but varying degrees of, of classroom experience. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so there's, a, I think one of the biggest challenges is how do you meet all these different needs? Most, if not all, instructional coaches struggle with how do you meet a wide variety of needs so you may have 30 teachers in your school and 15 may have great need with math practices and another 12 have some great need with some literacy practices mm-hmm. And then some of those people are the same people. So it can be a real challenge to juggle, you know, those first groups, those 15 and those 12. And then meanwhile, you may have someone who is in a brand new situation, may or may not be brand new to teaching, but is in uh, first grade for the very first time. And they're they're struggling because there's so much so much of their job is new to them whether it's curriculum um different styles of management um technology and the list goes on and on and this you know sort of this moment that they're in they're for lack of a better word they're really lost so they get a lot of attention and you have to kind of juggle all of these needs and levels of need at the same time can be a real challenge yeah how receptive are people to you coming in and uh, do you ever get any any negative or defensive reactions from teachers? I feel like in my current situation, I've been very lucky. Like I said, this is it is very unique to have so many new at the same time. And I was new in this building in this role at the same time, although I've done this job other um, places in my district. So I've been very, very lucky that I've seen very little resistance or apprehension. And I, and I feel that's partly, partly because of my approach is that I don't feel like I'm here to fix you. So you better listen. Yeah. You know, I'm, I feel like we're partners and I'm always looking for, I'm not going to find the thing that's wrong and try to fix it. I'm always looking for, let's look at these, these couple things are really going well. And then maybe there's just a couple of things you want to consider that you could take the next move with. So I think a lot of it's approach, but, but certainly in the past I've had just like anyone in their job and their profession has had, you know, person to person resistance because it can be tricky. That's for sure. As far as, you know, find teachers who are resistant that they don't see the reason behind 
a particular move that uh that the administration might be driving or you know sometimes it's uh it's a part of the culture of the building to question things or to be skeptical mm-hmm. or 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 to question people and say I'm not going to believe you till you can prove it to me that you can hang with me, you know, that kind of thing. So how do you how do you handle that kind of a situation when you get that kind of feedback? I think one of the key strategies that I've found is that my job's not I'm here to tell you, but my job is we both have some some of the solution here. You know, we both have, you know, if you if we're assuming it's one teacher and one coach, mm-hmm that we both have some um, level of experience that will contribute to making the classroom work better, to, to helping kids learn and being more engaged with, with the content, with the other children in the room. I feel, I feel a lot of it is approach. And I think a big piece of it is trust. I think that teachers have to know, the teachers you work with as a coach have to know that it it's okay to not be perfect in front of the coach because you're not you're not there to evaluate them you're not there to report back to the administration you know that you better go down to room 3 because so and so is doing doing this you know doing this wrong or doing yeah. that mis- making this mistake better get down there you know? <laughs> Now, do you have to clear up that misconception for them or how do you, how do you get them to sort of believe that you're not just going to be reporting on them? I think you do have to sometimes, especially when you're new in the situation, you have to be upfront about that and set, and you have to call it out, especially Mm. in cases where teachers have been wronged in the past by some other, and it's not just coaches, other teachers, you know, we've, there's certainly been situations where where a special ed teacher works with a general ed teacher and and they don't handle that person to person trouble appropriately and and one of them goes to the administration and it makes more more of a problem between them rather than fixing it right. so i think you have to be upfront about it i think you have to be clear along the way about it and then i think the the proof is in, in your actions too. You know, I think the, the first time you break that trust mm. with one teacher, you've pretty much broken it with every teacher yeah. in the building. You know, it's a lot like the old, um, you know, where they say when you're buying a car and the dealer, uh, wrongs you in some way, you're, how do they say it? If you're, you're buying a, a car, you, and they do you right, you'll tell 10 people. But if you do wrong, They'll tell a hundred people. Yeah. Yep. So, so, so a brand new instructional co- coach may, may just need to do, to put their time in and build that trust with everybody. They may not be able to expect that trust right away. I think it's building it, but also really being intentional upfront and thinking about, I'm new in this job. If I were not the new instructional coach, but I was the teacher, which I was likely, Mm-hmm. You know, a week ago, a month ago, or a year ago. Yeah. How do, how would I want this person sitting across the table to treat me if I was still the teacher? And then, it, you know, it, it can be tricky. There's times when the administrator in the building wants the coach to, you know, I don't want to say surveillance, but, you know, to, to check on someone and report back. And the coach, you know, has to kind of stand up for that 
for, for believing in that trust piece and saying, you know, I really, it's not really my place. And you're welcome in every build or every, every classroom in the building because you are the administrator. So, you know, <laughs> you go watch them. <laughs> kind of. I mean, part of it is that, you know, you, you, uh, there's a, there's a line there that administrator can cross. You can probably, in most districts, the administrator can walk into any classroom anytime and check out how things are going. Right. But sometimes I've even heard of and actually experienced coaches not being sort of allowed to come into teachers' classrooms. You have to kind of be invited in. And sometimes it's a little more free that it's the expectation that the coach will be in with you and working seamlessly. And and so there's different approaches there too, sort of from, you know, the directives of the school or that district. So, yeah. So in terms of, since you've been doing this now for a number of years, are there things, are there ways that you do it now that are different from when you started out changes that you've made to your approach? I would say for sure. Um, I feel like I'm as a coach, more patient with teachers and I am a teacher. I am not a, outsider to the profession, I feel like um, one of the best pieces of advice or sayings that was um, taught to me in my training to become an instructional coach, uh, one of the trainers said, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I guess it's an old, you know, Zen saying or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like uh, sometimes that's when the teacher is ready, the instructional coach will appear. Huh. So, I, you know, sometimes it's, it's finding ways t for teachers to become ready. Because if you're just going in and you're going to try and fix everything like a hammer, like you're a hammer, you're yeah. just going to break a lot of things. And, you know, in some cases that might be trust. Sometimes that might be the teacher's confidence. Sometimes that might be the positive climate in their classroom or beliefs they have about instruction. Mm -hmm. So your job's not to fix that. Like you're always a hammer. Your job is to fix that with like the right tool for the right moment. You know, it might be, there may be some misconceptions about a particular teaching style. There may be mistakes that are being made that teachers don't feel are a mistake or you know, maybe using a practice that's not the best practice. It might be effective, but it maybe isn't as effective as it could be. I think part of it is being skilled with, so we'll go with the tool analogy, you know, the tools in your toolbox as a coach to help teachers come to that next step, but not just always in an enforcement mode of, you know, I'm the hammer, I'm going to smash if you don't fix, you know, so... <laughs> It's to be to be more um, sophisticated with your methods as a coach, um, because it, just like in the classroom, telling is not telling's not teaching. If I just tell you, oh, you should really do this, that's not teaching you in the classroom. If you were the student, and it's really not very good coaching either. Just tell and talk. You know, you have to learn about it together. You have to practice it together. And you have to give feedback to each other. Yeah. Are, have you? Have, do you have any sort of uh, go-to strategies that I'm thinking about when you really want the teacher to realize something themselves? Like, for example, do you use a lot of video or something where you can kind of have that teacher discover on their own about something that may not be working or something that they're doing? 
video is a really um, exciting piece of instructional coaching. It's not a tool that we've sort of started using very actively in my school role right now. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it, but I feel like you have to be ready for it because it doesn't lie. Yeah. You know, it's like that looking in that mirror in the bathroom with the fluorescent light, there's nothing, you're not hiding anything. So I think when teachers are viewing video of their own instruction, it can be very eye-opening and I guess it's sobering in a way. And, and I think it's great, a great piece for instructional coaches, but I think it's, you have to use it at the right time when you built up the right level of trust. And it can be used in lots of different ways. One of the, one of the best ways is that the coach isn't really part of the process. It's maybe the coach sets up the camera, tells them, tells the teacher, you know, here's how you press, press record, record, um, 20 minutes, press stop and you can watch it and reflect on it yourself. Then they don't feel like they're, you know, being watched as much as they're just watching themselves. But I've, but I've seen also, I've, I've worked on some coaching, uh, roles outside of my school district where I've actually worked remotely, um, with some teachers in, in another state where they were filming, um, their instruction and then watching it and uploading it to a site. And then we would do our coaching conversation using that video. And it was really powerful, let's say genre of coaching, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Would you, so would you say, I want to go back to something. And I don't remember your original question. Well, I was talking about, um, whether you have certain strategies that you use in order to get to, you were talking about how you can't just tell a teacher something. That's why I brought up video. If there was something that you do to help teachers realize maybe that something they're doing is less than effective as opposed to just telling them this is not the way to go. I, th- I feel like another go-to strategy is to bring into the conversation student work because the the act of teaching is not a show. It's not, you know, it's not entertainment. It's really all about um, some kind of result. And it might be a formative assessment at the end of the lesson. It might be the end of unit math test a week later. But I think a really big eye-opener for teachers is that bringing of student work to the table. It's interesting sometimes to, to hear people's take on what their students are able to produce, but I, I firmly believe that if the students can't do it on their own, then we haven't taught them well enough. And that can be hard. It's It's been hard for me in the past. You know, I've had certainly times in the past where kids will turn in work and I'm their teacher and it's not what I wanted or what I expected or they didn't meet the goal. And I have to realize that a a good deal of that's on me. Yeah. And and either the, the, the teaching of it or the motivation of, of the students to learn it wasn't up to, up to the standard I'm looking for. So when you're looking at student work with a teacher and you you get some stuff there that's sort of subpar and the teacher says, well, this kid just doesn't want to do anything or he's not motivated or whatever, whatever sort of reason in terms of putting it on the student, what do you say then? Hmm. Well, my go-to question is, so what are we going to do about it? Oh. Because it's not... 
I've, I've struggled with this over the last couple of years that I feel like a lot of teachers and I'll lump, I'll put myself in there too sometimes that a lot of teachers feel like education and learning is like, like a buffet. And if, if the kids don't want to come and eat, well, that's on them. And I feel like that's ignoring a big piece of what teaching is about. And, and it's motivation. It's the relationship we have with our kids. And there's so much there that we've all had situations where we had a boss that we didn't like and guess where our performance, you know, our performance is less than um, it would be with a boss that we really have a great relationship with. And kids need that too. You know, it's not the buffet analogy of here it is. You don't want it. Shame on you, but I need to, I need to build that relationship that, it's okay to learn, not even okay, but it's going to be celebrated and building that positive relationship because it could be that kids don't trust what you're serving. It could be that kids, you know, that it's not presented in a, in, in the right way. Yeah. So I think there's a, a lot to not being just a teacher as a technician, but, but being a teacher as building that relationship, knowing what you're talking about. Um, building motivation with your kids and then real, real true results that last can follow. Yeah. I've got two more questions. What is the most satisfying part of your job? I, I would say a couple things. First, I love that my job is still about not just working with teachers, but working with kids that I get to see kids every day that I get to build those positive relationships that just, you know, seeing them, even if it's sometimes it's too brief is a really great part of my day that, that I get to see a lot of kids too, because I work with a bunch of different classrooms where some folks might only work with one or two groups of kids. And the other thing I think it is makes it really satisfying is when you're working with a teacher and you've gotten to the point where the teacher starts to try some of the strategies and techniques that you've been talking about that teachers actually put them into place, mm-hmm. which is, which is nice. You know, you feel like, huh, we talked about that. Somebody did it. <laughs> yeah. But then the really satisfying part is when the teacher sees the impact of what you talked about, that they, that they come back and say, I tried it and things went so much better. And then it's like they get hooked a little bit on it, not hooked on, you know, all the smart stuff that Eric says, but hooked on just looking for that next, you know, that next positive step, you know, to find that, that one thing that could be next. Yeah. And then you almost work yourself out of a job because they don't, (laughs) they, they might not need you in the same way. Yeah. They they start learning how to just look for that stuff themselves. uh Yeah. And then, and then it cha- the relationship changes a little bit. So maybe it's the balance tips a little bit more to their side of the, of the, of things, but in a great way. So then you're more the, the little voice in, on the side, right? you know, that you just go, just remember, don't forget. Yeah. So this last question, you may have already covered this. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out as an instructional coach? I feel like this is two really big things. 
that are not really easy things, but to be successful in this kind of role, you need, you need to have both. The first one is to go slow and do things well, rather than to really go fast and make a bunch of mistakes. You see it all the time that people want to do everything for everyone and fix everything for everyone. And by the end of day two, they, they can't keep up. So the second one is to always remember that your job as an instructional coach is to support teachers and it's not to be the enforcer, to be the, the initiative police, you know, the change police that, that you're, they shouldn't feel that you are there to watch them. They should feel that you're there to support them and to learn with them. Wonderful. That's, that's great advice. Eric, thank you so much for, uh, for just all these insights. This is, it's been really interesting to talk to you. Well, I thank you for your time. It's been a, a, a great conversation. And so people can find you at yourinstructionalcoach.com. And uh, can you give us your Twitter handle too? Yes, um, I'm also on Twitter at ECSandberg11 or ECSandberg11. Okay, and that's Sandberg with an E, B-E-R-G. That's it. Okay. Thank you so much, Eric. Have a great night. Thank you, you too. For links to the resources mentioned in this episode, go to cultofpedagogy.com slash pod and click episode 27. While you're there, set aside some time to explore my other resources for teachers. Thanks for listening and have a great day. This podcast is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.